ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Wadjukland, which is part of the Noongar Nation. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, why are so many new parents feeling overwhelmed and unmoored when they bring home a new baby? And what can we do better? When you hear the name yellow fever, you probably think feared medieval tropical disease. Well, yellow fever is making a comeback and the United States might be next and us perhaps also at risk. And how much did COVID-19 really cost the healthcare system? New data tells all, or does it? And what we can expect now the Senate inquiry into ADHD has handed down its findings. But first, Norman, this is the part of the show where I would usually have a chat with you about what's been happening in health news this past week. So here's some news for you. After more than three and a half years and 532 episodes, you and I are retiring Coronacast. Yes, it's the end of an era, not the end of the pandemic. We thought we'd broaden our horizons a bit. Coronacast has now become, well, I just feel a little bit itchy saying it, What's That Rash? <laughs> yeah, it's called What's That Rash. The first episode comes out this Wednesday. If you are already subscribed to Coronacast, you'll get it no matter what. But if you're not, make sure you follow What's That Rash on the ABC Listen app. But just like Coronacast, this show is all about us answering your questions. So if you have a health question, please send it to us. You can email us at thatrash at abc.net.au or ask it on Instagram at ABC Health. Okay, it is time for some real health news now, Norman. Yeah. Life could be about to change for the roughly one million Australians with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. A Senate inquiry has delivered its long-awaited report into ADHD care, including 15 recommendations, including on the topic of rules around prescribing stimulants and Medicare rebates. Background briefing reporter Angela Vapierre has been taking a closer look at the report. Welcome back to the Health Report, Ange. Thanks so much. So with those people who haven't been following, how did we get to this point? Yeah, so look, it has been pretty hard to miss the conversation around ADHD over the last few years. It's been everywhere, at least that's how it feels to me. Mm. Uh, But look, during the pandemic, there was this surge of interest in the condition and we're seeing that flow through to prescribing rates. Um, The number of Australians taking medication for ADHD has more than doubled in the last five years. There are 414,000 of them and that was in uh, 2022, sorry, yes, 2022. Uh, So it's gone up again this year, but we just don't know by how much yet. Um, So yes, all of that uh, extra demand, all those extra patients has put a spotlight on ADHD care more generally. And there was this growing queue behind services. There's a shortage. And so the Senate decided that it was time to to look into it because people were really struggling to access care, both in terms of the wait lists and the price. So in March, they they set up the inquiry and the report has now come back and it's, you know, not full marks. Um, the view is so far that, that we as a nation could be doing much better. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of issues here. Are the right people getting diagnosed? Who's missing out and that sort of thing and the extraordinary costs. Were the recommendations of much use? Yeah, look, um, you mentioned prescribing and, and Medicare. There are a few standouts from that list of 15. Um, the committee has recommended harmonising prescribing rules across the states and territories because um, they are very inconsistent at the moment. If you move states, you might find that your script doesn't work or, you know, the rules change and um, it, it's just a bit of a mess. So they want to expedite that process. 
the government was also asked by the committee to review the pharmaceutical benefits scheme on on this front. So, um, basically, no, it's could GPs recommend prescribe it rather that, than having to get a specialist? That is part of it. Yeah, that that is something that they're looking at. Basically, looking at more closely at which doctors can diagnose ADHD, which is kind of code for saying taking it beyond the realm of uh, psychiatry, which is where it sits at the moment. Psychiatry and pediatricians. So yes, looking at Medicare, looking at PBS, um, it all sort of seems to be on the table. Any kind of bombshell recommendations were weeded out during the committee process. It was initially this report supposed to come out in September and then it was delayed by a month and then another month because basically the Greens couldn't agree with the major parties on this. So it all it all sort of got delayed. And a big sticking point there being that the, the Greens wanted to have uh, ADHD added to the NDIS, which didn't, you know, so explicitly make the final list of recommendations. Yeah, well, well this, not for this discussion for another day. What about the costs? What are they going to do about that? I mean, some psychiatrists are charging eye-watering sums. Yeah, that's right. And look, that was kind of the elephant in the room and no one really named the elephant in the recommendations. It was kind of speckled throughout the report, which I've um, done my level best to, to, to read. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the issue there that you're referring to is that some of these private clinics that have cropped up in the wake of this surge in demand have been charging astronomical fees for assessments, $3,000 in some cases. In fact, the ADHD Foundation told that inquiry that there were assessments costing up to $5,000. Oh. Yeah, so um, the, the, the fees... So what remedy did they have for that? Well, they didn't really name one, but because of, you know, the number of recommendations there that are targeting, um, you know, that they, they talk about bulk billing and looking at Medicare and sort of basically improving the public funding for ADHD care. And I think the thinking here is that that if they do manage to do that successfully, then it will essentially break the model of business for some of these clinics because people will all of a sudden have a choice. At the moment, they don't. It's kind of, you know, pay high fees in many instances or get no care at all. And so if they are able to expand care in the way that they're hoping, then, you know, the market will sort of correct itself. But as you can imagine, that's not going to be a quick process. No. So it's going to be like any other Senate inquiry, you know, it's going to be for your grandchildren. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. Um, look, they, they do have a clock on it. The government is meant to respond within three months. Um, so look, the soonest we'll get get to hear about what they're going to do here is February 2024, which is the, you know, sort of first sitting weeks of, of Parliament. But, you know, the government has taken more than three months to respond to reports like this in the past. So it, it could take a while. Yeah. And you've got another investigation into ADHD care coming out this week. Yes, I do. I've been looking into what happens when people are on inappropriately prescribed stimulants and the worst case scenarios there, and, and in particular focusing on some of those high fee, quick turnaround clinics, the $3,000 ones we were just talking about. And, you know, in the worst cases, patients can develop stimulant-induced psychosis. And it's it's not common, but it's becoming more so, which is definitely a worrying sign. So we'll be covering that on background briefing this week. And you can find background briefing on the ABC Listen app. Angela Vapia, thanks for joining us on The Health Report. Thanks for having me. About a year ago, we covered the launch of the ABC Birth Project, a project that invited people to share their experiences of birth in Australia with the idea of highlighting the parts of the system that had room to improve. Well, room to improve there is indeed, according to the many thousands of submissions that we've received. One woman who wrote in said she felt unsupported both throughout her birth and afterwards. Here's Natalie reading her own submission. I remember the exact moment when it became apparent things were not going well. 
It was 2pm on the Tuesday. The midwives started to talk amongst themselves. The birth wasn't happening as it should. I turned to my husband, Ben, himself a seasoned ED and ICU nurse, and watched as the blood drained from his face when the cardiac arrest team pushing a defibrillator and a dozen or so hospital obstetricians rushed into the room. Minutes felt like hours as I was pried apart with forceps. They are absolutely medieval implements of torture. My husband Ben looked small and fearful. As my daughter was laid on my chest and the obstetrician poked and prodded and sewed me up, I surveyed the crime scene around me. Yes, they got her out, but I was terribly injured. I stayed in that ward for five nights, sharing a small windowless room with a series of women who seemed had effortlessly given birth and sent home within 24 hours with their new bundles of joy. I, on the other hand, didn't sleep more than two or three hours a day as I tried to deal with my broken body and the pain I was in. The hospital discharged both of us without offering really any postnatal care, even though I was clearly so physically and mentally injured. No follow-up, no referral, no pain relief. I've since learned that this is a typical response to women's suffering, which is usually diminished or simply ignored by institutionalised medicine. Women are expected to endure untold amounts of pain and discomfort in our healthcare systems. I just didn't understand why I was being asked to cope with it all alone, even without basic treatment. I needed to be treated as if I'd been in a major car crash, but instead I was pushed out of the hospital with nothing more than a slap on the back and a thumbs up. Emma Morris leads the ABC Birth Project and has been the custodian of these stories, and she's here with us now. Hi, Emma. Hi, Tegan. Thanks for having me today. So 4,000 responses to the call-out, give or take. What kinds of stories are people sharing? We had a range of experiences and some positive too, but to be honest, many of them brought us to tears with heartbreaking experiences. Um, And we really thank every single person for contributing to the project. We had over half uh, of experience in mentioning the lack of birth education and the impact of those decisions. We had uh, issues around the rise of interventions and the misunderstanding of the impact from labour to forceps. We had um, you might mention of miscarriage and stillbirth. And I think as well what was quite uh, significant is that nearly 40% of those submissions actually talked about the lack of postpartum care. And it's, it's something that uh, during this week particularly we're focusing on uh, mm-hmm. with the remaining of stories that we have to tell. Yeah, so postpartum care, I think there's obviously huge gaps in the birth process and pregnancy, as you say. That sort of happens mostly in a medical setting where there's actually a bit of control over it. But postpartum care generally happens at home and there's really no consistent system across Australia. No, and I think, you know, the the rise of postpartum doulas, the, the amount of money that we heard from women saying that they were spending on postpartum care um, and just the 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 you know there was so much focus on the pregnancy and the birth even ba- you know even as a society around baby showers and preparing but once you get home with the baby you're sort of left to fend for yourself and you know i think that story that we just heard from you know really resonated with a lot of women that, and, and partners that shared their stories um and you know looking for solutions and i think that's something that um you know having that systemic sort of you know model of care in this country is something that we don't really have Yeah, you mentioned there people shelling out for postpartum doulas, which is great for people who can afford to do that. Uh, And obviously there's a real gap there in terms of what people can pay for. When it comes to sort of the themes that you've been uncovering throughout the ABC Birth Project, are you getting a sense that 
it's it might shift the needle in terms of like real real systemic change. Well, we just feel like we've been part of a bit of a growing movement, particularly this year. While things might not have necessarily changed for people giving birth and families, um, we just noticed as well there are a lot of other media outlets focusing particularly on birth trauma and obviously now with the current New South Wales inquiry into birth trauma as well, which has been amazing to to um, you know um, see but I think that I think also what we've been trying to do from a story point of view is look at what other um, what what are some of the solutions so around that Medicare funded sessions with pelvic physios we we've got a story looking at Indian communities in Melbourne and and that sort of period of confinement and the idea of the fourth trimester that um, we you know we don't really have in in western in western culture You've given birth twice in the past few years, including during COVID, <laughs> so you're not exactly like a, an impassive no. bystander. How have these stories resonated with you? Uh, it really was the drive to get this project off the ground. Um, and it's not just me. We've got a team of six uh, across the ABC, 15 reporters and more working on this project and still counting. Um, I think to date we've got 25 stories across radio, online and TV, but it was it's for me, it's breaking down that taboo of, of women's health um, that we don't talk about it. And I think that I, when I first had my firstborn, you know, bef- just before COVID, she's five now, I was kind of shocked that all these things no one had told me about, um, particularly around in that postpartum period, that first year, it is such a change becoming a parent, becoming a mother. Um, and my partner too, and we were sort of really, you know, we, 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 rabbits in the headlights, I think, was really what we both look back on now. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing. Um, and and I think COVID, you know, while it definitely made that that period a lot harder, we had an, our second in COVID, it really, to me, just exposed the wires of a broken system that um, mm. isn't there to support families in that postpartum care. And I have such a passion that if we could t- change the, the focus to support the family, that then we'd be able to support the mother more um, rather than just the focus on the baby. He's hoping this starts to shift the needle. Thanks so much, Emma. Thanks for having me. Emma Morris leads the ABC Birth Project, our stories across all of the ABC places this week. You're listening to The Health Report. Yellow fever, also called yellow jack, was first described in the 17th century as Europeans colonised Africa and the New World. It was much feared as a fatal disease with a horrible death through haemorrhage. The yellow fever virus is spread by mosquitoes, and with global warming and changing rain patterns, some researchers are saying that they expect a comeback in the United States. Why am I telling you this? Well, the same species of mosquito are already either in Australia or are very near neighbours like Papua New Guinea. Professor Desiree Lebeau was one of the authors of this warning about Yellow Jack. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Why is it called Yellow Jack? It was called Yellow Jack because when ships were quarantined because they thought that they had yellow fever, they would often fly a yellow flag. Sign that there was something on board. Just describe Mm -hmm. yellow fever to us. How does it manifest? Yellow fever is a flavivirus, so it acts like a lot of other flaviviruses, such as dengue or Zika. Most of the time, about half of people who get exposed to yellow fever actually don't show any symptoms about half the time. And then those who do show symptoms usually have fever and headache, you know, body aches, muscle pain, vomiting, nausea, feel tired, occasionally jaundice. 
And usually the infection and the disease is usually spread into three different categories. The first is the infection category, and that's the one I just described. And then there's this period of remission where people tend to get better. And then unfortunately, some people go on to get severe disease. And that's the feared complication where about half of people die. And that takes the form of very severe jaundice, liver failure, renal failure, lots of multi-system dysfunction. And you know, the feared complication was always this black vomit because you have all of this bleeding. And it's spread by mosquitoes. Which countries in the world at the moment have yellow fever? There have been a lot of outbreaks recently in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And then there have also been large-scale outbreaks in South America, Brazil being most prominent recently. Which they put down to deforestation and the movement of these mosquitoes out of the forest areas. Yellow fever, like dengue, has a sylvatic cycle, so it is kind of perpetrated in nature. Humans get close to the forest edge and all of the most recent outbreaks in Brazil. Everyone who came down with yellow fever supposedly had an exposure to a forest, was a worker having to do with deforestation in Brazil, but at that forest edge. And so they came in contact with these forest-dwelling mosquitoes. And luckily, it hasn't gotten into the urban cycles with Aedes aegypti in urban areas in the big cities, because that would be a big problem for all of us. You have to say that some of these species of mosquito do seem to be spreading downwards towards Australia. But why do you think Southern America? You know, over the years, the last decade or so, we're seeing more and more locally transmitted arboviral infections. We're seeing a lot of Zika and dengue, and we've also had locally transmitted malaria in, this, in the U.S., and so the issue is that we have all of the vectors that are competent to support these arboviral infections. And with yellow fever, although most of South America, it's been the forest-dwelling mosquitoes, there's still that fear because we know that yellow fever can be spread. There can be an urban cycle with Aedes aegypti, and we have Aedes aegypti in the southern United States. In fact, last week, we know that we have Aedes aegypti here in California. We had our first locally transmitted case of dengue in California in a long time. So the concern is that there's just a lot of risk factors. We have a warming climate. We have lots of Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, the sister mosquito here in the United States that could transmit the infection. And so we're not well prepared. There is an effective vaccine out there. We don't currently have it in our national stockpile. What's the potential spread for, say, via travel? Somebody with yellow fever arriving in tropical Australia, being fed upon by a mosquito and that mosquito transmitting it. I mean, is that plausible or what's the epidemiological spread internationally? It's a very good question. It's possible. The issue is that there are places in the world that have these mosquitoes that we haven't seen. Like, for instance, in Asia, we haven't seen large yellow fever outbreaks in Asia, right? There might have been imported cases, but we haven't seen any large outbreaks. And so it makes you think maybe there is some potential block in the mosquito vector. Although there may be the same genus and species of mosquito in different places, it can behave differently and maybe have different competence for this virus. And so it could be that the mosquitoes are less competent. It could be that maybe people are protected because they've had other flavivirus infections and so forth, and it hasn't taken hold. And there's just, or maybe there's a large population of people who have been vaccinated and are covered, and therefore there's not that susceptible to kind of start that outbreak. The story that you just said, that is how these viruses get around the world. Most of the time, they get around in people who may even have asymptomatic infection and then happen to land in a new place where a competent vector is there to feed on them and then start an outbreak. And that's how Zika happened. That's how Chick spread through. Chikungunya. Um, yeah, Chikungunya, Central and South America, and so forth. And so that is the concern. Just when you thought it was safe to go out. 
<laughs> yeah. The issue is, is that this is a virus, potentially deadly one and a severe one, but it's one that we actually do have an effective vaccine for. In the U.S. here, we don't have any of that vaccine in our stockpiles. And so we were just sounding that alarm bell that, you know, maybe we just want to really be more proactive in this case. I think after COVID and, you know, we all know that there's all of these potentially severe infections all over the world. And of course, these infections know no borders and we live on a very small little blue marble. And so it's just important to know about this and think about it and really think about better surveillance for it and then, you know, be proactive in our preparedness for it. I mean, we can be lulled into a false sense of security, or maybe not as a false sense of security. Many of us live in urban areas and don't live in poverty. To what extent is poverty and deprivation a risk factor for yellow fever? I think it's an important one. And I think it's an important one for really all arboviruses because the way that we live, you know, the human built environment can either put you at risk for these infections or it can protect you. You know, if you live in a wonderful house that has closed eaves, that has screens on all the windows and air conditioning inside, you know, you're probably less likely to come in contact with mosquitoes that could spread these arboviral infections. But if you're living in poverty or you're unhoused, you know, you're at risk for these infections. And we've seen it time and time again in our studies that poverty often puts you at risk for exposure to these diseases. And so I think it's important as we think about preparing for these arboviral infections that are becoming more and more common with the warming climate and with these vectors. I think it's important that we also think about the root cause of what makes people vulnerable to these infections. And I know my co-author, Peter Hotez, often speaks about diseases of poverty. You know, oftentimes people think, oh, those diseases, you know, they're in South America, they're in Sub-Saharan Africa, they're far away from me. You know, they can't touch me or my family. But hopefully now, after COVID, people realize that we live in a very small, interconnected world and that we aren't as far away from these faraway infections as we thought. And so I think it's important to know about them and then really be active about protecting ourselves and preventing these infections in our communities. Desiree, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Desiree LeBeau is Professor of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Stanford University in California. The latest report on what we're spending on health in Australia has offered a clear picture of what COVID has actually cost, as well as its impact on healthcare expenditure overall, which goes to the truth or not of the statement you often hear from politicians that our healthcare system is financially unsustainable. Jeff Callaghan is head of the Health Economics Unit at the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare and was one of those responsible for the health expenditure report. Welcome to the Health Report, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. So, so let's start at the big picture, because you often rate nations according to the percentage of gross domestic product that is spent on health. Um, and we're right in the middle internationally, aren't we? It's not too bad. Yeah, that's right. So uh, this year's report, which is for the financial year 2021, um, shows that we've spent $241 billion in total on the health system. And when you put that in the context of the overall economy, uh, you're right, that's about 10.5% of our GDP which is sitting pretty much in the middle when you compare it to other OECD countries or comparable countries to uh, Australia's and Australia-type health system, a universal health system, and similar size economies. I mean, the Americans spend, what, 17 or 18%? That's right, yeah. America is still a bit of an outlier. They're at around 17% of their GDP. But there's countries like Germany, which are also quite expensive. So Now, the interesting thing here is that we were trucking along at around about 10%, and then in the first year of the pandemic, it jumped to, I think, 10.7%. And now it's slipped back at a couple of percent to 105 
That's right. So that kind of indicates that the overall economy was performing better in the, the third year, the third financial year of the pandemic. So as a consequence, um, health expenditure as a proportion of GDP came down slightly. Um, oh, but if we so look at uh, so, Right, so it's a function of two things, how well your economy is doing and how much you're spending Correct. on health. So if the economy is doing well, then Correct, the expenditure yeah. comes down as a, as a proportion. So let's move then to COVID right. itself. What have we actually spent on COVID in the healthcare system? Well, in the financial year 2021, a uh, total of $25 billion. Um, so that's about equivalent to 10% of the overall health expenditure. And we're actually going to be having a more comprehensive report coming out towards the end of the month that will be looking at total expenditure on COVID-19 over the three financial years, three financial years of the pandemic, so 1920 through to 21-22. What were the elements of that spending? Yeah, this, this report doesn't necessarily focus in on all the elements of the, the spending, but there's broadly speaking, there's two main sources of funding for the COVID expenditure. So you've got the National Partnership COVID Response, which was a partnership between the Commonwealth Government and State and Territory Governments, and that was $12.8 billion. And then you've got government, Commonwealth Government spending uh, through the Department of Health and Aged Care, which was a further $12 billion in expenditure. Um, if you look at the NPCR in particular, You've got the hospital services payments of $3.8 billion in this year in the 21-22 financial year. Then you've got public health payments of $8.6 billion, and that's going to cover your vaccine rollout primarily, um, but also COVID testing and also personal protective equipment like masks, um, face shields. And then you've got your private hospital financial viability payment which was the, which is um, prop them the government up during the during exactly, the and that was funding just from the the Commonwealth government for private hospitals to prop them up during the the COVID period. Uh, no, it's not part of this report, and maybe you haven't done it. But in a sense, in terms of that expenditure, how did it rate internationally? Uh, yeah, that's another good one to look out for in the forthcoming report, and um, we have Go done on, some give analysis us a sneak on preview, that, Jeff. Go on. <laughs> Okay, I'll give you a sneak preview. Uh, actually, I, I probably can't, I'm sorry, because the report hasn't been made public yet, but um, that analysis is forthcoming. Um, right. But suffice to say that we compared very well um, internationally in terms of our what you might call your excess health expenditure, how much we spent more than what you would anticipate spending uh, in a normal year. We, we compared very well. And just finally, are hospital costs out of control compared to previous years, non-COVID? Well, there's a, there's a few different measures within the report that can help frame our thinking around that. And the first one we've already touched on, and that's health spending as a proportion of GDP, uh, which is currently around 10.5%. But if you look at that proportion over the last 10 years, that has actually been quite steady. It's only grown from 9.6% up to 10.5%. Um, the second measure that we can look at is health government health spending as a percentage of total government expenses. That's currently around 17%, both for the Commonwealth governments and state and territory governments. That's a bit higher than the 10-year trend, um, but that's just because of COVID. And then we've got individual health spending as a percentage of average annual income, and that's currently sitting at less than 2%, and that's been pretty steady over the last decade. Um, so even though we've, you know, we're spending more on health, our average annual income is also increasing, so it's compensating. And then the last one is individual health spending as a percentage of net worth. Uh, 
Um, so net worth has been growing much more quickly than average annual income. So health spending as a percentage of net worth is only 0.23% currently, and that's come down very quickly, quite dramatically over the last decade. So overall, quite comforting, Jeff. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Jeff Callahan is head of Health Economics Unit at AIHW. And that's it for the Health Report this week. But you don't have to wait a whole week to hear us chit-chatting again because, of course, our brand new podcast hits your feeds on Wednesday. It's called What's That Rash? Find it on the ABC Listen app. Speak to you then. Bye. Everyone is talking about artificial intelligence. I'm James Bertil. I'm a tech reporter and I'm interested in the human stories of AI. Who created it? Who's using it? Who's getting used? We've been trying to get machines to think for decades and decades and decades. I'm telling some of these stories in a new series of science fiction. We've called it Hello AI Overlords because we're pretty sure they're listening. Science Fiction, 5pm Sundays on RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Thank you.